Have you ever wondered what it's like to kill a man? Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the first of many true crime stories from Cryptique. We're going to try to focus on occult-related murders and crimes. Hit us up at crypticpodcast at gmail.com if you have an idea for a name for our true crime segments. And don't forget to check us out on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast, YouTube at cryptique podcast, merchandise is crypticpodcaststore.com. Now let's get to the show. So what are we talking about tonight? The killing of Tim McLean. On July 30th, 2008, there was a tragic incident involving Tim McLean, a 22-year-old guy from Canada. Now, it happened on a Greyhound Canada bus while it was cruising along the Trans-Canada Highway, about 19 miles to the west of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. It's awful to even say, but Tim was stabbed, beheaded, and even cannibalized during this terrible event. On July 30th, 2008, there was this incident involving Tim McLean, who worked as a carnival barker. He was on his way back home to Winnipeg after finishing up work at a fair in Edmonton. So he hopped on the Greyhound bus 1170, which was headed to Winnipeg, taking the Yellowhead Highway route through Saskatchewan. Tim chose a seat towards the back of the bus, just one row ahead of the restroom. Around 6.55 p.m., the bus pulled out from a stop in Erickson, Manitoba, and there was a new passenger getting on, a guy named Vincent Lee. Now, Vince was described as a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and sporting sunglasses. When he initially got on the bus, he sat somewhere near the front, but later he moved and ended up sitting next to Tim after a scheduled break in Brandon. Tim and Vince didn't really exchange much interaction. Tim pretty much just nodded off against the window with his headphones on, trying to catch some rest. Witnesses recounted that Tim McLean was in a deep slumber, wearing his headphones, when the guy seated next to him suddenly whipped out a huge knife. Now we're talking a Rambo-style knife, so a big fixed-blade hunting knife. To the onlooker's shock, he started stabbing Tim in the neck and chest out of nowhere. The chaos that followed was intense. The bus driver swiftly stopped the bus on the side of the road and everyone on board, including the driver, dashed out of the bus, trying to get away from the danger. The driver and a couple of other brave men tried to step in to help Tim. But this guy, Lee, he turned aggressive and chased them out of the bus and left them standing outside with the doors locked. It's crazy to think about that but Lee actually went on to decapitate Tim. He didn't stop there, though. He held Tim's severed head for everyone outside to see, and then went back to Tim's body and started cutting off more body parts. Disturbingly, he even consumed some of Tim's flesh. 
Around 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police over in Portage La Prairie got a call about a stabbing that happened on a Greyhound bus just outside the city. When they got to the scene, they found the suspect still on the bus, unable to make a getaway because of the quick thinking of another passenger, the bus driver, and even a truck driver who had offered up a crowbar and a hammer as makeshift weapons. Meanwhile, the rest of the passengers were grouped together at the side of the road. Some of them were pretty shaken up, even crying and feeling sick, understandably. Before the police showed up, Vincent actually tried to make a run for it by attempting to drive the bus away. But the driver had this emergency system that basically made the bus unable to move. It was like something out of a movie. The witnesses, they saw this guy, Lee, brutally stabbing and slashing poor McLean's body with a knife. It's unimaginably awful. It's just a horrifying scene that these people had to witness. Right around 9 p.m., the police were locked in this intense standoff with the suspect. They had called in specialized negotiators and this heavily equipped tactical unit to handle the situation. Meanwhile, Lee was acting erratic still. One moment, he's pacing back and forth inside the bus, and then the next, he's doing some unspeakably horrifying things to the poor deceased body. As if things weren't gruesome enough, the police officers on the scene actually saw Lee eating parts of the body. While all of this was unfolding, the stranded passengers got taken away from the scene and brought to the Brandon RCMP detachment where they were interviewed to gather information about what they'd just experienced. Believe it or not, the RCMP officers overheard Lee saying something along the lines of, I have to I stay have on to this, stay bus, this forever. bus forever. In the early hours of July 31st, 2008, around 1.30 a.m., the suspect made a desperate attempt to flee from the bus by smashing through a window. The RCMP managed to arrest Lee shortly after this. They used a taser, shooting him twice, and then they handcuffed him before placing him in the back of a police cruiser. I gotta say, if this was in America, he definitely would have been shot. There would have been no taser. Maybe a dog. As the investigation continued, the police collected plastic bags containing parts of the victim's body from the bus. Shockingly, they also found the victim's ear, nose, and tongue in Lee's pockets. Unfortunately, the victim's eyes and a portion of his heart were never located. Despite Lee's strong denial, it's believed that he consumed those missing parts. By 10 a.m., Greyhound representatives stepped in and helped the other passengers out. They took them to a nearby store so they could get new clothes since their belongings were still stuck on the bus. Eventually, they all reached Winnipeg around 3.30 p.m. It must have been a huge relief for them to finally be back, reuniting with their families and friends after such a traumatic ordeal. Timothy Richard McLean Jr., known as Tim, came into this world on October 3, 1985, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He spent his growing up years in both Winnipeg and Ellie, Manitoba. 
Sadly, he was only 22 years old when his life was tragically taken. Leading up to that, Tim had been working as a carnival worker, specifically taking on the role of a carnival barker in Edmonton, Alberta. In a bittersweet twist, just five months after Tim's devastating passing, on December 21, 2008, his son was born. It's a heartbreaking reminder of how life can be both incredibly fragile and resilient at the same time. More on Vincent Lee after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Vincent Lee, who went by Vince, was born April 30, 1968, in Dandong, located in Liaoning, China. He took his educational journey seriously, graduating from the Wuhan Institute of Technology in 1992 with a bachelor's degree in computing. Following that, from 94 to 98, he put his skills to use as a computer software engineer while being based in Beijing. His life took a significant turn when he decided to make Canada his new home. Vince immigrated to Canada on June 11, 2001, and over time, he embraced his new identity fully, becoming a Canadian citizen on November 7, 2006. From the fall of 2004, things took a turn as Vince found himself in Winnipeg, taking up humble positions at Grant Memorial Church for a span of six months. This was all in an effort to provide support for his wife, Anna. Vincent worked under the guidance of Pastor Tom Castor during this time. Interestingly, despite facing language barriers with fellow congregation members, he appeared content to be employed and was dedicated to executing his tasks to the best of his ability. It's a testament to his determination and willingness to work hard even when faced with challenges. Pastor Castor told CTV Winnipeg, quote, I think he would occasionally feel frustrated with not being able to communicate or understand, but we have very patient staff members and he seemed to respond well, end quote. Castor also said Lee did not show any signs of anger issues or any other trouble before he quit in the spring of 2005. He began working as a forklift operator in Winnipeg, that same year's summer, while his wife worked as a waitress. According to what Stanley Yaron, the psychiatrist involved in his court case, revealed, Lee shared with him a remarkable story. Lee claimed that he had experienced a significant transformation during his time working at Grant Memorial Church. He had converted to Christianity and even underwent baptism after hearing what he described as, quote, the voice of God speaking to him. Intriguingly, this voice told him some rather extraordinary things. It referred to him as, quote, the third story of the Bible, and went on to label him as the second coming of Jesus. This voice seemed to have convinced Lee that he had a special destiny, one where he was meant to protect people from an impending alien invasion. This conviction led Lee to undertake some unusual actions. In line with these beliefs, the voice instructed Lee to travel extensively across the country, either on foot or by bus. 
This often meant that he would disappear from home for extended periods, a fact confirmed by his wife. Lee began carrying a buck knife with him as a form of protection due to his persistent fear of being targeted by these supposed alien infiltrators. It's truly unfortunate that this ultimately led to the tragic event where he used the same knife to take another person's life. In retrospect, these delusions were attributed to his undiagnosed schizophrenia. There had been prior instances that hinted at his mental state. In 2005, he was found wandering along a highway in Winnipeg by the Ontario Provincial Police. During this encounter, he claimed to be, quote, following the sun under the command of God. Although some local newspapers reported that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and rejected medication during his assessment at the William Osler Health Center, official records don't actually indicate any documented mental illness at the time. During his trial, it was brought to light that his maternal uncle had an unspecified psychiatric disorder, possibly hinting at a genetic predisposition to mental health issues. Lee's journey took him to Edmonton in 2006, where he initially left his wife behind in Winnipeg before she eventually joined him. Over the years, he held a variety of jobs showcasing his adaptability and work ethic. Stints as a janitor, mechanic, and cashier at Walmart. He also worked at McDonald's and took on newspaper delivery duties. Interestingly, Lee's boss during his newspaper delivery gig, Vincent Augert, had a positive view of him. Augert described Lee as dependable, diligent, and notably, he didn't display any evident signs of difficulty or trouble. It's a testament to Lee's ability to maintain a positive work record despite the complexities he faced in his personal life. About four weeks before the tragic incident, Lee faced a setback when he was let go from his job at Walmart due to a disagreement he had with a fellow employee. In the lead up to the incident, Lee's actions seemed to take an unusual turn. Just before the event occurred, he requested time off from his newspaper delivery job. He needed the time to travel to Winnipeg for a job interview. Then Edmonton, Lee took a Greyhound bus headed for Winnipeg. The next day around 6, on July 29th, Lee disembarked in Erickson, Manitoba carrying at least three pieces of luggage. He spent the night on a bench near a grocery store. A witness noted seeing him sitting completely upright with wide open eyes around 3 a.m., which is unusual, to say the least. As the morning of July 30th rolled in, Lee was still seated on the bench. He ended up selling his new laptop computer to a 15-year-old boy for just $60. The laptop was later seized by the RCMP as evidence. However, the young boy's honesty didn't go unnoticed. An anonymous businessman stepped in and rewarded him with a new laptop. Garnett Catone, who witnessed the horrifying incident, shared his observations. He noticed that the attacker, Vincent Lee, appeared to be completely unaware of anyone else around him at the moment of the stabbing. Catan also mentioned being taken aback by how oddly composed Lee seemed. He described the scene, saying, quote, He wasn't showing any anger or strong emotion. It was like he was a robot just stabbing the guy. End quote. When Lee made an appearance at a Portage La Prairie courthouse facing charges of second-degree murder, his behavior was quite striking. According to reports, his only words spoken were a haunting plea.
please, please kill people. I'll tell you about the trial after a quick break. got underway on March 3, 2009, and during the proceedings he entered a plea of not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. In simple terms, he acknowledged that he had committed the offense, but he argued that he couldn't be held accountable because of his mental state. Stanley Yair and his psychiatrist presented a compelling case that Lee's schizophrenia had compromised his ability to understand the nature of his actions. According to Yaren, Lee believed that the victim, McLean, was a malevolent entity and an imminent threat to himself and others. In Lee's distorted perception, McLean was a disguised demon or an alien that needed to be eliminated. This led Lee to mutilate McLean's body, driven by a belief that this would prevent him from returning to life. Lee also claimed that he felt coerced by what he believed were divine voices commanding him to carry out the attack. These voices purportedly threatened Lee with harm if he didn't follow through with the act, framing it as a matter of self-preservation. Both the defense and the prosecution aligned with Yaren's evaluation advocating for Lee's involuntary commitment to a mental health institution instead of traditional imprisonment. The presiding judge, John Scurfield, concurred with this assessment. He ruled that due to this diagnosed mental condition, Lee was not criminally responsible for the tragic killing. Consequently, Lee was sent to Selkirk Mental Health Center for treatment and care. In the week following the attack, Greyhound Canada made a significant decision. They announced the removal of a series of nationwide advertisements that featured the slogan, there's a reason you've never heard of bus rage. Given the context of the tragic incident, this move was likely prompted by the sensitivity of the situation. No doubt about it. The incident itself sparked a substantial response from the public. Many people called for heightened security measures on intercity buses, and petitions were circulated with the same demand. The shock and horror caused by the event amplified concerns about passenger safety during bus travel, leading to a call for more robust security protocols. The family of Tim McLean brought a lawsuit of $150,000 against Greyhound, the Attorney General of Canada, and Vincent Lee. On June 3, 2010, Lee was granted supervised outdoor walks within his mental health facility as voted by the Provincial Review Board. 
On February 16, 2011, two passengers, Deborah Tucker and Kaylee Shaw, filed a lawsuit against Lee, Greyhound, the RCMP, and the Canadian government for being exposed to the beheading. They were each seeking $3 million in damages. However, on July 14, 2015, the two women dropped their lawsuit. On May 30, 2011, CBC reported that Lee was responding well to his psychiatric treatment and that his doctor had recommended that he receive more freedoms, phased in over several months. On May 17, 2012, an article in the National Post revealed a significant development in Lee's situation. He'd been granted temporary passes that allowed supervised visits to the town of Selkirk from the Selkirk Mental Health Center. During these visits, a nurse and a peace officer were there to provide supervision. But in a groundbreaking moment, Lee broke his silence and spoke publicly for the first time. In an interview with Chris Somerville from the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, he shared that his condition was gradually improving. He was undergoing treatment with olanzapine, a medication used to manage schizophrenia, and he was actively learning about his condition and strategies to cope with it in a healthy way. Lee took responsibility for his actions, expressing his deep remorse. He stated that the memory of the Greyhound bus incident would forever remain with him and acknowledged that he may never find happiness again. He was candid about the fact that he didn't expect forgiveness from Tim McLean's family, recognizing the immense pain he had caused. When asked for his parting words, Lee extended an apology to McLean's mother, indicating that he had unfinished words to share. I would like to say to Tim McLean's mother, I am sorry for killing your son. I am sorry for the pain I have caused. I wish I could reduce that pain. End quote. In a report by CBC on February 27, 2014, it was revealed that starting March 6th, Lee would be granted the opportunity to have unsupervised visits in Selkirk. Now, I'm all for treating mental illness, but do you want this guy walking around your town? These visits would begin with a duration of 30 minutes and gradually expand to cover entire days. Before this, Lee had been given permission for supervised visits to several locations since 2013. These included Lockport, Winnipeg, and nearby beaches. Over time, the level of supervision during these visits had been eased, culminating in the decision to allow him unsupervised trips to Selkirk. This development indicated a degree of progress and trust in his treatment and rehabilitation. On July 17, 2014, a sad and poignant report from the Toronto Sun highlighted a tragic outcome. Corporal Ken Barker, who had been one of the initial officers to respond to the scene of the incident, had taken his own life. His family shared in his obituary that he had been struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. This heartbreaking turn of events underscored the profound and lasting impact that such traumatic incidents can have on those who are involved in responding and dealing with their aftermath. 
On February 27, 2015, a report from CBC News revealed a new development in Lee's situation. He was granted unsupervised day passes that allowed him to visit Winnipeg. However, there was a condition attached to these passes. Lee had to carry a functioning cell phone with him at all times. This measure likely aimed to ensure a level of communication and safety during his outings, considering his history. On May 8, 2015, CTV News reported that Lee would be granted passes to group homes in the community. In February 2016, news emerged that Lee had taken a significant step in his journey. He had officially changed his name to Will Lee Baker. Alongside this, he expressed a desire to move out of his group home and live independently. After legal process, he was granted the right to live on his own, and on February 26th, this change was approved based on a recommendation from the Criminal Code Review Board. This decision marked a significant milestone in Lee's ongoing rehab and efforts to reintegrate into society. On February 10, 2017, a pivotal decision was made by the Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board regarding Lee's status. They ordered that Lee be discharged, granting him an absolute discharge. This means that he is no longer under any legal obligations or restrictions concerning his independent living. This decision signifies a significant milestone in Lee's journey indicating that he has met the criteria set forth by the review board and is no longer subject to any legal constraints in his everyday life, including taking his psych meds. And as you know, we will fight Big Pharma on this show. But do you want Vincent Lee? walking around your neighborhood. Do you trust him? Do you believe that with this man who cut somebody's head off and probably ate their eyes walking around your neighborhood? Because I do. Let us know what you think about the story at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast, YouTube at cryptique podcast. You can find cryptique merchandise at crypticpodcaststore.com. And we'll be back soon with another heavy hitter. Good evening, Crypt Keeper.